I have preachers tell me that all the time, and that they, yeah. they became they become Anglican and Good Shepherd, and they move away, and they say it's. I mean, there's an Anglican church here. They say, but it's just nothing like Good Shepherd, and. I, I thought I was getting into something like a shepherd, and it's not like a shepherd at all. So I'm going to go to this Presbyterian church. I'm going to go to this uh, Lutheran church. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today, as usual, with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great. Great, Nick. Thanks. Matt, I loved Anne's article today. It's almost impossible to talk about because of all the double entendres that you have to use and the euphemisms. But apparently NPR is out here encouraging men to watch pornography and do the things that follow thereafter. Yeah, well, and then that, that will keep you from being a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. If you don't do that, you're clearly going to be a white supremacist and Nazi. So that's that's your only hope is, is, to, is, to, is to keep that up if you're doing it. You used to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now it's something else. Yeah. Oh, boy. No, it's really amazing. I mean, it, it, and, and it's, it's, it's the science, though. I mean, it, it, it's it's not oh, just yeah. NPR. It's the science, the, science, the, the top experts, uh, sex therapist experts and the science the experts are saying, you know, use without a constant stream of pornography coming, coming into your into your uh, mind and your home, then then you're going to be, you know, all right. How did humankind survive? <laughs> I mean, I guess the argument is that they were like chiseling porn on the walls of caves. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's how. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's what. what it, <laughs> I guess that's the way it worked. <laughs> Do you think it's it really, just coincidental that it? coincides right. with the apple's launch of their new vr headset too <laughs> that thing is dystopian my oh, goodness you seen that movie? watching these videos of these people walking Walk around across the street, streets yeah. with the yeah wow what i this is the first so i remember when the iphone came out i thought oh this is cool i'm gonna love this like every new advance in, in technology i've been thinking okay i can i can deal with this i can i can incorporate this into my life but this is the first one where it just seems like no, <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I thought I the think. whole thing was going to be like it was going to be an unobtrusive thing that would look like a normal pair of glasses with maybe a little glint in the corner. But this is a full-on ski goggle headset. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When you have any, you put on your haptic, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, suit yet, and one. then got on your treadmill. Yeah. That's right, and then ran after. Um, you know easter eggs throughout the world that's except yeah, that, it'll all it'll um, all just be porn that's what it'll be well that's how the whole internet developed anyway i mean yeah. all of the all of the innovation was pushed by you know um like all the credit card yeah. stuff all the um you know i just think it's it's yeah i mean it's it's, it's what, what a strange time we're living in um but there we go I mean, I think it's, you know, what, what's interesting, there's a book that I'm looking at right now. It's called, um, no, I can't find the title, but it basically talks about how, you know, it's in totalitarian government's best interest to destabilize and to have like the sexual libertinism, particularly for men, because if you can't control yourself, then at some point someone's going to have to come in and control you for yourself. And so it's actually, I mean, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory, but I think there's there's clearly somebody is benefiting from the not just not just the pornographers themselves, but from the from the availability of all of this pornography 
and the discussion and the desensitization of it, somebody other than just the pornographers is benefiting from it. I mean, that has to be the case because otherwise you would think you know, you, you know what there, there was a game theory thing that came through the other day that I was found interesting. And it was maybe R. McIntyre mentioned it, it was that, that, that the, the outcome of the thing is its purpose or something. There's like a Wikipedia argue about this. And it was like, whatever else people are saying, like porn is being, you know, mainstreamed, pushed and available at younger and more, um, you know, extensive areas. So like, that's the point, like that's what's happening. Somebody is allowing that because it's helping them. And it's, well, yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's, uh, the end goal for the folks at the WEF, for example, is to have us all living in efficiency apartments Rent good internet access, eating bug meat, bug food, and watching <laughs> yeah. porn, and, that, and, that, and that's the, we're easily controlled. All, all the only the, the best way, and then to to have us do whatever they want. We us might to get do, on like in dark in internet, Black Mirror, right? huh? We might in Black Mirror get on a treadmill every now and then and help power small cities. You know, that'll right, be what right. we'll do too. I mean, I, I, funny, used to, I, I used to be worried sorry. about being a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I, I actually in 2019, I, I wasn't a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I thought uh, the people who had conspiracy theories were uh, out of their minds. But then, yeah, and then came COVID, and everything the conspiracy theorists were saying actually turned out to be true. So I have a hard time, like when things flash through my screen on social media, like, hey, maybe we didn't land on the moon. I, I mean, I don't believe that, but for, like, for, for a second or two, I'm thinking, oh, wait. That flag does look a little stiff. Its flag does look a little, a little. Uh. No, well, that's this how is we the introduced problem. our moon landing read, episode. If you, <laughs> quote unquote moon landing. If you, um, if you actually read the revolutionaries, I mean, this is the problem. Like if you go back and read them, you know, then you see that, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly play by play but the the general playbook or, or the game has been played fairly consistently you know it's destabilized the family by you know getting rid of monogamy you know yeah. taking children away from parents as early as you can brainwashing them into you know getting rid of their superstitious i.e religious you know prejudices and turn them into you know dutiful workers um you know taxable workers for the state i mean that's that's basically the the playbook, um, and you get people like John Dewey and John Rawls, and you get um, you know turn of the century early uh, philosophers, and they you know to a large degree will will say this is you know they didn't they didn't specify the means, but the ends are are pretty much clear in sight, you know, and that we'll even look at the tax system, you know, I mean like they make it uh, it's 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 you know, onerous to have children, for instance, you know, I mean, there's, it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult to do the things that, you know, we tax the things that we want to, um, to, to prohibit, and we, we make it easier, the things that we want to, to flourish. And so you look at like the ease of pornography and gambling, sports betting, you know, these things you look at, um, and then you look at the difficulty of like, adopting, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like, and you look at the ease of access to, to abortion, and you look at the, the, um, you, you know, all, down the line, and I, again, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist. I just think you have to appreciate that there is no neutral world, you know, and I think that's where like, um, I think I was just listening to a, was it the podcast? Yeah, with Rosario, it was on the, the podcast the other day. And she was saying, you know, that it's the five lies of our anti-Christian age. It wasn't post-Christian. She was talking about how she was using the, it's no longer, you can say like, we live in a post-Christian world. We live in an anti-Christian world. And I think that actually just goes back to Romans 1 where what's true about God is clear 
and they are without excuse because they have rejected the truth for a lie. And the resultant accepting, uh, accepting of the, the lie is that they are not only under judgment, but enemies of, of God, you know, and I think that's what we're seeing right now is that you've got um, just outright enemies of anything and everything that smacks of, or that echoes of, um, of the, the demand of God on the, on the call of a sinner, you know, and I think it's um, even down to just having a two parent family, you know, that's uh, that, that needs to I mean, look at all this stuff about polyamory. We've been reading about all that. I mean, it's disgusting. I can't even read the New York Times anymore without feeling like I need to go confess for like what I've been, <laughs> you know, what my mind has been open to. Because there's this book, I forget her name, but it was all, it was like in the Atlantic, it was the New York Times, it was in the, um, you know, reviews all over the place. And it was just this, this really sort of raunchy, for lack of a better word, depiction of the, like her, you know, her new polyamorous multi- you know, sexual encounter lifestyle. And at the end of it, I just felt like this is being talked about as like in quote unquote polite company. You know, this is just being discussed over, over, you know, book, book parties. I'm like this, this is a, there's a darkness here that I think the thankfully Christendom light held at bay for, you know, a thousand years or so, but it seems to be encroaching again. Well, so much for our witty banter this week. Yay. (laughs) Yay. Well, so after following this Calvin Robinson mere Anglicanism fiasco for the last few weeks, the talk, the reactions to the talk, the reactions to the reactions to the talk, including our own, I've caught myself wondering if the ACNA can survive its apparent inability to have this conversation about women's ordination in any real and life-giving way. I've certainly seen similar sentiments online that the Calvin Robinson affair is the first chime of the death knell of the ACNA. But then along comes Jeff Walton, uh, the Anglican director of the Institute on Religion and Democracy in Washington, D.C., someone that we hold in high esteem here at Stand Firm. And Jeff tweets that although significant disagreement is real, the assertion that ACNA is in crisis is hyperbolic. And his reasoning is that the ACNA is a functionally congregationalist denomination, one in which laity rarely see beyond their local parish. So, guys, is Jeff right? Is the crisis in ACNA overblown, one? And is ACNA a functionally congregationalist denomination, two? And if so, is that a good thing? I was kind of surprised by – I was surprised by what he said because by the text, the, the post, because he remembers what the Episcopal Church was like in 2002 before before everything broke open. And, and largely, the sexuality debate – in the in the Episcopal Church was something that was going on between clergy. I I think the vast majority of the people in various parishes had no idea what was happening. Yeah, and so and so I, I think it's I think it's it's not just that's not just endemic of the ACNA. That's typical Anglican uh, way of going to church. People get into their parish, they embed in their parish, they love the people in their parish, and they love the parish, and they don't think a lot about the diocese until the bishop rolls around every. You know, every year or every hour, you know, in the Episcopal Church, our bishop only had to visit us every three years. So oh, wow. we barely saw him, right? Um, the only people who really knew what was going on on the diocesan level in the Episcopal Church were our uh, delegates to the uh, the diocesan conference every year. You had to but, beg people to do that horrible work. Yeah, yeah. No one wanted to do it. Right? And the people who did want to do it, you didn't, you weren't sure they wanted <laughs> You wouldn't have wanted them to go, yeah. <laughs> Right. So, uh, so I don't think that's, that's, that's typical of the ACNA. And, and I don't think, I don't think that the fact that people in the parish aren't up in arms 
doesn't mean there's not a crisis because the crisis in the Episcopal Church was largely largely evoked by clergy, clergy who who saw what was going on, went home and told their parishioners, and then that got the ball rolling, right? So I don't know that this particular issue will be the thing that gets clergy so amped up that they're going to go back to their parishes and say, hey, this is a, a big crisis going on in the ACNA. We need to do something about it. Uh, I, I tend to think maybe it's not for good or for ill. I'm not saying, but I'm not making a judgment call about that, but, but I don't think that it necessarily will be, but I don't think that Jeff Walton's posts was evidence one way or the other. I think, it, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I, I just think that's, that's just the way of, of parishes. It is really up. It, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that having come from the Episcopal church, like you did, I remember basically using this language almost in my defense when somebody new coming to us from another denomination usually would want to know how our polity worked. I would sort of reassure them that we were something in practice, at least if not in polity, like a congregational church. Like I was going to do locally what I felt like I needed to do. And for the most part, we would be left alone. Like you said, even even with our annual Episcopal visitation, until things got really critical, the bishop didn't seem to care what I was doing. It's not like he was ever listening to my sermons online. And so it was then a seeming advantage to be able to sell myself as a congregational church in an apostate denomination. So it's easy to stay in that mindset almost by accident now in the ACNA, especially because I'm in a non-geographic diocese. I don't have a lot of other collegial churches near me. So it's very easy to forget that now I'm supposed to be and want to be in a better, more mutual relationship with not only the other churches in my diocese, but my bishop who supports me and cares for me. I feel like Jeff is kind of right on the ground that we are functionally congregational, but I'm thinking that we should work to upend that, to to be less congregational rather than more. Well, I I mean, one of the things that I think evangelicals who come into the Anglican realm are comforted by, maybe maybe not if they're coming into the Anglican realm in the Episcopal Church, but if they're coming into the Anglican realm in the ACNA, they're they're comforted by the, ex, the, the authority over the parish level. So because I've had numerous parishioners tell me, man, my pastor, there's nobody above him. So he, mm. just, he just, he did whatever he does. He's, you know, you just kind of, kind of got to hope and pray that the board of elders or the deacons or whoever has a good tab on them. But, but if, if, the, if all of them decide to go, to go rogue, their church is done. Right. But if you have, and, and so I think a lot of evangelicals see the Episcopal system as a safeguard against that. As long as your bishop is good, then there's a level of safety and security that you can have in a parish level. Insofar as they think about it at all, um, there's, there's some safety and security on the parish level that can be safeguarded by a good Orthodox bishop. So like I, I had, I had a, I had a parishioner send me the, do you guys remember when, uh, when Rod Dreher came to talk at, uh, at our synod, they, yeah. they mm-hmm. the base bishop. Well, of course, I remember. Yeah, yeah. and then they, right, they had the, the base bishop headline with the bishop's synod address. I had a prisoner email me and say, "He was a new prisoner." <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> "Wow, 
where is this bishop? We should, <laughs> this would be great if we, if this is our bishop. And I got to say, well, he is. So good news. Right. He lives several hundred yeah. miles away, but he is our bishop. <laughs> That's right. right. Right, right, Well, I think part of the, you know, part of the splintering is certainly not, or a congregationalist um, balkanizing, for lack of a better word, is not, um, is not just an ACNA problem. You know, I mean, this has been a sort of a function not a bug of Anglicanism, you know, ever since really since colonialism. I mean, if you look around the world, I mean, it's, you know, when they, the churches that that stayed with common prayer, you know, have a certain uniformity, um, irrespective of their cultural situations. But once we, you know, once they, they moved from that as the standard, you know, then you had the, you know, Book of Common Worship in the Church of England, you know, which has like, you could put together a different worship service every Sunday and still not exhaust the possibilities for like years in that church. You know, you have the all the various rites and all the various ways that you could put church together. And on top of that, you had indifferent, if not um, sort of, well, you had indifferent bishops in many cases to, to you know, imposing um, any sort of uh, liturgical continuity and so over a couple of generations of that, of course, you've got, you know, then on top of that, you know, lest I forget, you have the high church evangelical, you know, charismatic divide that um, was, for better or worse, perpetuated for another generation or, or two, uh, certainly in the Church of England, and three even. And so, you know, you throw all that together, and we've we've got an opportunity before us, whether or not we want to try to reimpose now an ACNA, relatively small, relatively uh, young still, sort of a at least a liturgical conformity that would bring back something along the lines of of you know I don't care if you have a guitar and I have an organ, but we're both saying the same prayer of humble access, we're both hearing the same Eucharistic prayer, or at least one of the two, and so on and so forth. Um, that's an option, but I think short of that's going to take a lot of conviction by the bishops. I mean, they certainly can impose that if they wanted to, but it doesn't seem like that's that. Well, that's not the sense I get. But uh, maybe I'm just not aware of the fact that that, or maybe maybe I'm not aware of of how dire the problem seems to be in some, in, in, like in the college or something. I don't know. I and mean, what do y'all think? Well, I think that there's a difference <laughs> in terms of degree, right? Um, Matt, you were saying a minute ago about the clergy passing on their view of the problems in the church to their congregations, and this. Um, women's ordination issue seems to be sort of a higher level than what kind of instrumentation or what kind of liturgical practices are happening in a local church, but at a lower level than the blessing of same-sex unions or the rejection of the authority of scripture, et cetera. So it seems to me that part of what Jeff is getting at in his comment is that the local parishioners don't care up to a certain level, at least about what's happening at the provincial level, because they don't go to provincial assembly um, most of us aren't probably regularly communicating with our churches about the ins and outs, the details about what are happening at provincial synods, et cetera. But when something critical happens, it would be up to us to pass that along and to explain to our people why this is something that they should care about. And then at that point, it seems like Ang Anglicanism done right becomes much less congregational right then. Yeah, I think that's right. I think... Um... I have, in the past, even the ACNA just brought brought controversies to the parish level. I mean, we've, I've talked to them about, uh, you know, what was going on in the, in the Church of England and why it was important for Gafcon to go on and take a stand in that regard, and why it's important that our Archbishop was there and our 
our bishop was there and um and that was helpful i even i even spoke about during the height of the, the kind of wokeness scare in the acna uh, I, I wanted to that that's actually what prompted me to go through rise and triumph of the modern self um in my parish for 47 sundays in a row for christian education um <laughs> which everyone totally loved they were totally happy with that much time on that. um but because i because i because I to, but i think it was really helpful i mean now and now people are aware of that particular controversy and their and their ears are tuned to uh, the kind of language that people use who are trying to put uh, to push wokeness and they see it as an essential issue like, like if, if we have if we if the, the diocese comes or if the province goes that direction i think my parish should be ready to fight to keep it from keep it from doing that so so i think the influence of a, of a especially in our polity for the priest is there's not a plurality of elders there's there's the priest the rector in our polity the influence of the priest cannot be underestimated. So if a, if a priest in any given parish thinks an issue is big enough to bring to his parish and cause problems, because it always does, during the, the homosexuality fight in the Episcopal Church, if your parish is quiet and peaceful, informing them about the fight is going to be a fight for you. <laughs> it's going to be, it's, it's going to bring you a headache. So when, when whenever a priest decides, okay, this thing has gotten to the level that I need to inform my congregation and we need to get aware of it get the best aware of it so start thinking through how we're going to act that's how parishes become active and uh willing to fight but again it, it takes it's a risk to do it so i think that might be one of the reasons why jeff walton would observe that in function we're like congregational churches because a lot of parishes a lot of parish priests are not willing don't want to bring anything to the parish level and this is super 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 important mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't disagree more with any priest who who takes that tack. So I don't know if if you're out there and listening to us, then um, you know you should call and we could talk. Because I think you know my way of operating is that if if I think that they're going to get blindsided, like in the supermarket or by a you know by a former parishioner who stayed with the Episcopal Church, for instance, or who has read a headline about you know, our connection with the homophobes in Uganda or something like this, you know, I mean, the, the ecclesiastical connections that I want to get them out in front of it, you know, as soon as I can. So we talked about all, you know, we talked about all this stuff, um, you know, at least in the rector's floor. I mean, like I have an adult education hour. I mean, it's not like a topic of sermon series on, you know, because I'm, I'm just looking out for them. I'm like, if you're going to get, if you're going to get questioned, you know, what is the ACNA, you know, why is this happening? You know, what's going on, what happened? And of course we were all, we took 35 people to mirror Anglicanism. So, you know, I had to address this adult ed immediately because people were asking me like, what, what just happened? What was that? You know, we had people on both sides of it, of course, too. And so I addressed it the meeting Sunday afterwards and tried to lay out it. Like we talked about last week, like what I thought the most charitable way of understanding what Calvin said. And, you know, there were some people that kind of knowingly disagreed with me smiling, you know, but it was still out there. And so, I think that the, we've said this before, there would be less congregational sort of attitudes around the ACNA if we were clearer from the beginning and at the outset and consistent about why we started, what we stand for, and what the uh, sort of hopeful future looks like with respect to Orthodox Anglicanism, you know, even if it's just the Jerusalem Declaration, you know, like, I mean, I mean, the number of people I would, wouldn't even want to know who are probably unfamiliar even with that document who are in ACNA churches is, um, you know, is, is probably woefully or is probably woefully much larger than I even want to, you know, take a guess at. And 
you know, that's the problem. And I think, you know, if you're in a church plant in a, in a, you know, storefront and you've got, you know, the vestments or whatever, but you're using some, you know, kind of alternative liturgy and, or you don't have any idea of the history and, you know, you've got a priest who was, you know, yesterday was a, was a Southern Baptist or something. I mean, you're going to have a hard time finding roots in that place, you know, have a hard time seeing the connection and the importance of bishops and, and archbishops and global Anglicanism. And, you know, I don't know what we do about that exactly, but um, except like you said, Matt, take the responsibility as a parish priest and do what you can to 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 give people the sense of of being part of something a lot, a lot larger than just your own congregation. J.D., you're in a diocese that is geographic. Both Matt and I are not. Do you find that being in a geographic diocese, you actually... <laughs> You have three or four overlapping geographic dioceses where you are. Um, do you find that to be helpful in terms of connecting people to a broader sense of Anglicanism and the church? Then I guess you don't really have experience otherwise. I'm far away from people with whom I would have collegiality just in terms of literal driving distance. Um, right. So it's, it's really easy for me to forget to actively connect my people to other Anglicans. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obviously it's, it's, it's easier. I think it's probably the, the, the way it should be, you know, I mean, we're dealing with what, you know, which, what is and what should to have a geographic diocese. I mean, to have actual you know colleagues and congregations that you can partner with or just fellowship with um, has been a wonderful gift. I mean, and, and you're right. I haven't ever actually not, I've never been in a non-geographic diocese. So I, I can only sympathize. Um, but I can say that having, you know, being able to drive across the bridge and have lunch with priests in my diocese, have deanery meetings, um, you know, even going up to mere Anglicanism. I mean, the way I pitched mere Anglicanism was that, you know, if you don't know um, a lot about sort of Anglican worship or you want to get inspired, you know, or, or sort of um, kind of a giant Anglican pep rally, like come up to Charleston, you know, and St. Philip's all, you know, maxed out and, great speakers and, you know, all the bells and whistles, like, you know, if you want to know what we're a part of, you know, come and see. And I think, you know, I think there needs to be more of that. Maybe, maybe, maybe we do, you know, regional mere Anglicanism type events for these non-geographic dioceses to get a sense of the what we're really a part of. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to it. I think that when they decided to do non-geographic, and I understand the reasoning behind it, but once that happened, it seemed like we almost set ourselves up for something like this, which is, you know, kind of a, a diocese by diocese and even church by church. We have slightly different looking sort of Anglican expressions. And and that seems to be a, a, a compromise that we have settled on that is uneasy, but stable for the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I don't see how it was possible to do anything else. Yeah in a province split by things like women's ordination. You can't you can't have geographical diocese if you have a province split by that question. You have to you have to have an option for for non-geographical diocese. I don't feel the same way that Nick, it sounds like you feel. I I, I don't think I don't feel like um, the diocese is way off in the distant yonder. Mm. <laughs> because the bishop does I'm not sure what your bishop mine comes every year. We have three who rotate. It is annual. Okay. Though. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, I, I, our our bishop has made a point of trying to be visible. So he'll send. He has regular meetings with our wardens. Oh, not just my wardens, but the wardens in the in the in the diocese. He's put the synod forward as a kind of 
conference. So he yeah. invites speakers like, you know, we're having Carl Truman come this next, this next synod. So he wants a lot of parishioners to come. And so he, he, he's trying to build this kind of sense of, of, um, of unity across the, across the way. And the end he's for, I mean, I, uh, I, I love my bishop. He's a great bishop, but there, you know he, he has these meetings that he makes us all go to, not just the synod, but there's this clergy conference we have to go to. And sometimes it's down in Florida and I'm in New York. And it's a really, it's really hard, hard to get down there, but it's, it's a kind of mandatory thing. Mm-hmm. So he is doing these things to try and build a sense of a diocesan union, which I think yeah. is, has been pretty effective. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I think we, I'm not sure if we, if we want to even go into this subject, but uh, a lot of bishops have the idea behind a diocese is that it's there to promote and support the ministry of the local parish. That's the that's that's the theory. But um, but over and against that is you know you can all you can all once and you 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 might believe that when you're writing for a bishop, but when you become bishop, <laughs> then suddenly the office of bishop is super important. Well, at least in the Episcopal Church, I remember hearing consistently that the diocese was the most fundamental unit of the church. Right, right. No, I heard that too. Um, and that's I don't why think you I've ever heard ten percent of your income right. and five percent over and above that for a quote unquote voluntary. Um, I don't think office. I've ever heard that exact phrasing from an ACNA bishop yet. I have heard bishops talk about the principle of subsidiarity, which is simply that the idea that that any function that can be served at a more local level should be. So in other words, that the diocese should exist to serve functions that a local church can't, and the the province should exist similarly to serve functions that the diocese can't. So I don't know exactly what that means in terms of where the actual fundamental locus of the church is, if it's at a a parish, at a a diocese, in the individual heart of a Christian. You know, I'm sure we wouldn't say that. There seems to be at least a little bit of a push and pull about what the unit of church really is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's just interesting. I hadn't really thought about this problem for a while, and I think it's because I used to be Christchurch Mount Pleasant, which of course has the Diocese of the South. You know, Steve Woods Church, which is entire his his cathedral essentially. Well, it's not his cathedral, but where he sits, four miles from us, we had a C4SO church you know, half a mile from right. us. And we had, um, you know, I think, I think that was it, but I, I might be mistaken. Um, but at any rate, you know, I was sort of always, it was always in the front of my mind. And the thought was, and I don't know what y'all think about this, is that there, there would be a movement that maybe not in our lifetime or maybe in our lifetime, but we might not see it, but at least a movement towards rectifying that, towards bringing into um, getting rid of these non-geographic dioceses in, in whatever whatever way they could. I mean, if that meant on one hand, you know, answering the women's ordination question one way or the other, um, and then just forcing, you know, letting the chips fall and saying, well, if you some of you want to become, you know, let's say they go to a sort of normalizing women's ordination across all the dioceses, then you have some people leave for the continuing churches or whatever, or going back under, you know, whatever the case may be. But but my thought was that that didn't seem like it would be the ideal long-term solution, or at least a tenable one. But maybe maybe that's going to be what our ACNA looks like in perpetuity, is this this sort of um, confederation or non-geographic confederation. I mean, I don't see how you stop it now. Like, so, so even if the women's ordination was, was resolved in the way that we would favor it 
being resolved. I can't see the Anglican Diocese of Living Word ever saying, oh, okay, we're going to give up our parishes to these local areas and we're going to, I mean, it just, because well, bishops to... who, are, who, are, who are in these non-geographical dioceses are, are really interested, at least these minors, in creating a kind of cohesion and creating a real tradition and a, a sense of identity. <laughs> I just can't see getting rid of that. I think um, part of the problem I'm not sure is that the value of it, honestly. Right. So. The ACNA is just, at least right now, it was way too small. I mean, you, you you could theoretically have two overlapping geographic dioceses that covered everything. You'd have like one, the South that ordains women, one, the South that does not. Obviously, they wouldn't have the, the same name. But in order to have that many dioceses in the U.S., they'd still have to be huge. And I'd still have the same problem that I have now, which is that the closest church in my diocese is a four and a half hour drive from me. And I can encourage my people to attend convocation and synod all I want. But that's a seven and a half hour drive for them, right. which is, right. you know, that's an ask. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, I I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in, for a while just because I've been preoccupied with my own, you know, what's right in front of me. <laughs> But it, it does seem like that this might be something just baked in for us, at least as far as as far as our lifetimes, probably. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's why the ACNA, I mean, we call ourselves a, a communion of churches, I guess, or we think of ourselves as that, but it's more like, it really is more like a confederacy as to this, this American one, uh, the American reformer, is it? It's, it's, the, the diocese are like, are like all the states before the Civil War with their own little independent <laughs> kind of independent structures. And the idea of a union is just an idea. It's not, it's not, it's not. Well, any, I don't any... think anyone, I don't think anyone argues that that's a problem. I think the problem is that like, for instance, when I lived in Mount Pleasant, other than instigating just out of a friendship basis, you know, I, the, the, the clergy and the, the sort of energies for lack of a better word between the diocese of the South and the, and the diocese of South Carolina just went totally past each other, you know. So we had here we have this huge, um, this huge church, St. Andrews Mount Pleasant, uh, that had a lot of resources, a lot of you know conferences and things. But you know, on my day to day daily basis, um, I've, they might as well have been you know up in Binghamton for all I actually interacted with them. And I think that's the difficult part. It's not it's not necessarily yours isn't is as I think telling a problem, Nick, because the even in the Episcopal Church, when you've got further out west, you know, sure. churches yeah. got further and further apart. Um, <laughs> but it's these strange, like Raleigh, North Carolina has like 17 overlapping, you know, there's, there's a new church plant in Birmingham and Raleigh from like one of the 42 every bishops, diocese, yeah. like every other, every other day, <laughs> I mean, somebody is planting a church in Raleigh um, from a different diocese. And it's, um, it's, you know, that, that seems confusing. If I were on the ground in Raleigh, I would be like, okay, you know, uh, how do I explain this and, and how do I understand Anglican identity when I drive past 17 different Anglican churches that are all in different dioceses? That's I think, an overstatement. I think, I think there is like four, though. I really do think there are four. I think I think it is a problem. And I mean, I, I mean again, I'm not saying we can solve it. I'm not saying it should be solved. Even I, I think it's the two paces out of the two. We're not going to squeeze it back in. But but the ideal think about Thomas Cramner. Right? The, the ideal was you could go to any parish in England and have the same service. That's Same right. Readings. Well, that's what I was saying in the beginning. I think right. that's an answer. An answer would be, at the very least, women's ordination or not, have a an agreed upon um, common prayer and like stick to it and say, you know, you can, you know, and again, I don't. Maybe that's happening more often than not, you know. But I know I was parishes. unaware that that wasn't true. I think our clergy are constrained to use the prayer book. 
Well, good. That's good. I don't well, think we, I don't well, know. No, I there's, there's churches, there's all over the place. There's dioceses that are allowed to use whatever they want. I mean, Richard Burke parishes are allowed to use like the Nigerian book or the Kenyan book. Mm. Or the, um, 79 still. Um, the 79, 79 yeah. people still use yeah, 29 still, exactly. So you, you, there's no uniformity there. And, and then of course we have the, the classic problem of the of charismatic worship versus Anglo-Catholic, I mean, high, high church worship versus low church worship. So there's no, there's no security that if you go to, if you travel from Bingham, Binghamton to Florida, you're going to find the same thing in an Anglican church. I have preached some of that all the time that they, yeah. they became, they become Anglican, a good shepherd and they move away and they say, it's, I mean, there's an Anglican church here. They say, but it's just nothing like good shepherd. And, I, I thought I was getting into something like a shepherd, and it's not like a shepherd at all. So I'm going to go to this Presbyterian church. Or I'm going to go to this uh, yeah. Lutheran church. Right? That's right. I mean, I blocked. I blocked. I showed up at this church, and I blocked out seven hours. My first seven hours of the Sunday, and and, and <laughs> we're in and out. And this new church right last <laughs> in and out an hour and fifteen minutes. <laughs> you know, I have been struck, and this is just as an aside. But uh, so we used the church here used the seventy nine prayer book, and for all, for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which, you know, we were still in their lawsuit. So they were like, you know, we're not going to buy a bunch of new books, um, um, and that's just what they've been used to, and so on. But the um, but what has been interesting is we've gotten to the we've been a year now into the 2019 and it's been fascinating to see how both services as you well know have both comfortable wars and the prayer of humble access mm -hmm. and they're the by and large the larger of the two services we have has been the the later one which use right too which of course doesn't have the prayer of humble access and kind of the 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 fruitfulness of having prayed that i mean i've i of course prayed it many times because i it's right one was my preferred service but um to see people who never interacted with that to have to have that prayer become part of our you know normal pattern of worship and then to piggyback off of it you know whether it's in teaching or you know the occasional reference to a sermon or just kind of you know tying it all together with that particular prayer in terms of its you know we call hamartiology you know it's sort of doctrine of sin is has been incredibly fruitful to watch you know what i'm saying like if if only we we had some standard confession and and absolution and and prayer even just those little components of it um i've seen have sort of united the two services in a way that um you know my just one voice couldn't and it was it was encouraging to me it really was very encouraging and so i think if i were a bishop you know that i would have it'd be as cool and as hip and as with it and easygoing as anyone you know but at the same time have a sense of what I actually believe to be the best practices and, and essentially, you know, enforce that, or at least, at least expect that. Um, and, you know, I think if we had, if we had a situation where you, the only difference, like you said before, Matt, was that you had um, somebody wearing a coat and tie and playing a guitar, but still were still were using the prayer book, they wouldn't be as jarring if you left, um, you know, your church to go to any of these other churches and I think that's the goal at the very least. We're not going to get geographic diocese. At least we could get some consistency in common worship. Um, and then maybe when this hymnal comes out, we'll have a sense of common praise and hopefully learn from the mistakes of the past. Well, before we sign off this week, we wanted to give our listener an opportunity to help send Stand Firm to Provincial Assembly. Held in June in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, this assembly is the 15th anniversary of the founding of the ACNA and will elect our next archbishop. 
Chady, Matt, and I would love to be there. And if you would like to help make that happen, you can consider a financial donation to the cause. We'll get specific information about where and how to do that soon. But for now, just be thinking about it. We want to go. But Stand Firm, as you might imagine, is run on a bit of a shoestring. Need a little help to get there. Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks so much, as always, to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 